Hi, I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. Due to the pandemic, we bring you One Bad Mother straight from our homes, including such interruptions as children, animal noises, and more. So let's all get a little closer while we have to be so far apart. And remember, we are doing a good job. This week on One Bad Mother, we might need more than a birth plan. I talked to Dr. Jamila Parrott about maternal health. Plus, Biz solves a mystery. Woo! So this is a check-in. I am stressed and tired. My daughter, we have avoided the vid. Ooh, the vid. The COVID for the two-plus years. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, we've become a little bit more relaxed. And, of course, with that, my my oldest child has tested positive. And it was right before they were supposed to, like, perform their first solo mm-hmm. for a camp that they were a part of, mm. which fucking sucks. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They were devastated, and I don't blame them, and I was sad. And then on top of that, you know, I had stuff that I wanted to do (laughs) and we can't do anymore, which I know is not anywhere close to the sadness that they feel, Mm. but it all just fucking sucks. Like, we avoided Mm. it for two-plus years, and now here we are on, like, fun weekends. But whatever. It is what it is. Um, And then I have a friend. I have two friends who love each other very much. But because they're both women, they're worried that eventually they are not going to be legally allowed to get married anymore because Mm -hmm. we live in a hellscape. Ah. And I'm helping one friend propose to another friend. And it's it's just a lot. And I just wish that people could love each other freely, but apparently that's too much to ask. Mm. Anyways, you're doing a great job. Bye. You are also doing a good job. Two things you're kind of mulling about here in your check-in, but that's kind of exactly what it means to be a person, right? I mean, it'd be great if we all were just very single-minded, which I do think people assume about parents. I think there's this assumption that, like, the bulk of your focus is on the kids in your house. And that's all you got. That, that We don't want to invite you to parties because you're like, I'm not talking about your kids. We can't go to work because you're like, I'm talking about your kids. Whatever. So uh, apparently, it turns out, parents are multifaceted people. So thank you for supporting my little theory in that. One, the COVID. I'm beginning to think that if you have not had COVID, it's the new like parent, oh, you don't know, you know, sleep deprivation. Oh, you don't know sleeping. You don't know what it's like to really be pregnant and tell you, right? Like (laughs) all the stuff we're not supposed to do, because let me tell you, You say, my child finally got COVID. There is a group out there in the world that's like, it's about time. You don't even know. You don't even know. Of course it's coming for you. Anyway, because we're all 
kind of horrible. But that's okay. It's okay to be a little horrible if we're mindful about it. I'm really sorry that they got COVID. And I'm really, it. there's not really a good time to get it. But that's not something easy to explain to a kid, which is in itself a huge emotional toil to take on and do. But you also do deserve to be equally sad about not getting stuff done that you would like to do. It really is okay. I mean, who's there to tell us that it's disappointing? Oh, I'm here. It's disappointing. You're right. It's not there. And I am really sorry. I'm really sorry. Maybe we can get ice cream and that might make it like a little something special during this. And when it comes to your friend, I'm so glad you're there to support them. I think that's really great. And I think you should keep supporting them. And what was it? I was just watching the Steven Universe episode where, spoiler, it was the wedding episode of Sapphire and Ruby who become a garnet anyway. And Steven is singing this adorable little song because everything was really awful like the like wars could happen any minute, right? The diamonds could show up. I know no one else is watching this show. But the point is, he's singing this song about we could think about, you know, disaster. We could think about all these things. But instead, let's think about love. Let's think about joy. Let's think about, you know, two people who love anyway. It's very good. I'm not doing it any justice. But it is now my little mantra in this sort of, I believe you said hellscape, to just think about love sometimes. We can think about those other things maybe tomorrow or maybe at the same time, but let's focus a little on the love. It is their right to get married right now. So let's make sure that they get to do that. You're doing an amazing job. Thanks for checking in. Let's think about cake. Let's think about flowers. Let's think about dressing up and dancing around for hours. There's an awful lot of of checking in, we solved a murder on our front porch. So Stefan has been carrying around with him since eighth grade a how to host a murder box game. I mean, it's all the envelopes because you got to mail the invitations. There is a cassette tape. And yes, we did have a cassette tape player. Vincent Price is on the box. Though not necessarily, I kept like waiting for his voice to come out of the tape, but it didn't. Anyway, we invited some friends over. We all were our little characters. Again, Baldwin Stefan was in eighth grade, so early 90s, I'm going to say, for Stefan. And it was so much fun. We made cocktails. We sat on the porch the whole time. All of our friends were really funny and very fun. And everybody, we had like dinner with it. It was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. Strangely, the tape player, when it was time to actually play it, even though Stefan had tested it, uh, ate it, ate the tape. But we found, of course, the recording on the internet because the internet. So thank you, internet. Uh, But it was a lot of fun. We haven't really just gone outside and hung out with friends in a long time. And I think I was reminded of like the belly laughs with friends that uh, were missing from from my life. And so that was really nice to be out there laughing really hard and just having a nice time and being silly. 
What's not silly is something we're going to talk about today. Uh, <laughs> sorry, guys. We're going to be talking about maternal health and a lot of the sort of systemic issues that are in place. And look, I know that sounds like a downer, and it kind of is. But this is a show about us adults, people having kids, or some, and this is one of the ways people have kids. And it's not just about the moment a baby pops out of you, it's about your health leading up to pregnancy, your health during pregnancy, and your health post-pregnancy. And a birth plan is great, but if they're not listening to us pre-post-birth plan or taking it seriously, that's also a problem. So yeah, so fun, 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 everybody. (laughs) We'll be right back to talk with Dr. Jamila Parrott about maternal health. Please take a moment to remember, if you're friends of the hosts of One Bad Mother, you should assume that when we talk about other moms, we're talking about you. If you are married to the host of One Bad Mother, we definitely are talking about you. Nothing we say constitutes professional parenting advice. Ms. and Teresa's children are brilliant, lovely, and exceedingly extraordinary. Nothing said on this podcast about them implies otherwise. Everybody, I am very excited to be speaking with Dr. Jamila Parrott, who is a fellowship-trained, board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist and president and CEO of Physicians for Reproductive Health, a physician-led organization that mobilizes the medical community, educating and organizing providers, using medicine and science to advance access to reproductive health care for all people. She is a fellow of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and is the former chair of ACOG's Committee for the Health Care of Underserved Women. She is also a member of the Society of Family Planning, the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, the Black Maternal Health Federal Policy Collective, and serves on the all asterisk, above all, steering committee. I am so glad she is on all of these committees. Welcome, Dr. Parrott. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I am very happy to have you here. And I will just, so that everybody knows, the bio is a lot more extensive, but I had to shorten it down for the sake of what I really want to talk with Dr. Parrott about today. And as everybody knows who listens, we normally start with who lives in your house, but we're not going to start with who lives in your house, though I see two very lovely plants behind you, Dr. Parrott, for safety reasons. I'm just going to let that sit there for everybody to sit in for a moment. And frighteningly is a wonderful lead in to my first question for you, which is to talk about the idea of pregnancy criminalization. This is a, a concept that I feel I could really take in directions that aren't accurate or miss a lot. (laughs) Sure. Well, I'll start by saying that pregnancy criminalization is not a new phenomenon. No. Right? We've seen folks that have been criminalized for their pregnancy outcomes for decades, if not centuries. We also know that criminalization, not just in pregnancy, but just period, right, in the world and in the environment, in the communities that we live in, is, is discretionary and often discriminatory. So some folks are targeted 
Some communities are targeted while others are not. And that's regardless of legality, thinking about the idea of criminalization writ large. Criminalization during pregnancy, though, is really being punished, criminalized, targeted for behaviors that otherwise you would not be criminalized for if you were not pregnant. And so we're thinking about, and this can really run the gamut. So anything from folks who are managing their own abortion care, sometimes we call that self-managed abortion, to we've had folks who have been uh, charged and prosecuted for suicide attempts or experiencing violence at the hand of another person for not wearing seatbelts during pregnancy. And so we really, there's a really broad category of the ways that we have seen people with the capacity for pregnant being criminalized. And it's not as uncommon as one would think, and certainly much more common than we would like. Yes. No, I, 10 years of doing this show, what I have discovered is nothing is actually that uncommon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 It is unfortunate. So... With maternal health, anybody who listens to the show knows we've talked and have tried to learn together. There's just this, a number of systemic and historically based biases when it comes to women's health and it diverging all together here when it comes to, like, I feel like maternal health is this vessel for so many lines of either systemic bias Racism, sexism, classism, uh, just all comes together. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering about the inherent risks of receiving care. Mm-hmm. So I think that I, I love that you started with a historical context. I think one of the most dangerous things that we see happen in the world today is people moving through a topic, discussing something, having conversations from an ahistorical perspective, right? We need to be grounded in the context of, of the history of our communities, with the history of the country that we live in. And the United States in particular has a long history of attempts to control with those with the power to reproduce can and cannot do with their own bodies. We see that we saw this manifest brutally and explicitly in controlling the agency and autonomy of reproduction for enslaved African women. We saw this play out in the American eugenics program, a, a program that was promoted, sponsored, and supported by the United States government that sterilized uh, many folks. But we know that some communities were targeted more than others, right? Thinking about those living on low incomes, communities of color. We have seen exploitation and experimentation on communities, Black, Indigenous, Brown women, Latinx folks, LGBTQ communities, right? Throughout this country's history. So the history here is really important. And it can be tough, right? to hear. Oftentimes people say, well, where, how do we move forward? Why do we need to spend so much time digging up the past? And, and I feel really strongly that it is the only way to ensure that we don't reproduce those harms. <laughs> Right. Yes, reproduce is a great word right exactly, there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But also to like understand as a as a physician, as a medical provider, folks come into our spaces with a certain context, a lived experience. Sometimes it is individual experience that's framed by any traumas that they've experienced, but there's also community trauma, historical trauma, intergenerational traumas, and resilience. 
right, that people bring into our spaces. So all of that is wrapped up in this individual's history, but also the history of the community and the country. So that's the first place that I think about when I think about how we are in this place where we're continuing to push back on attempts to control our bodily autonomy. And that's for anybody with the capacity for pregnancy. I think learning that the history of medical treatment and research when it comes to female bodies has always come from a place that removed the female body's person to advocate for themselves or to have a sense of autonomy, right? Like whether it be that people, I mean, it's still people of color have less pain, like that is something that in medicine, there are people who still think that there is a difference in pain thresholds and that women are hysterical, right? So how do you... Yeah. So, uh, so many things, right? So many things to pull on there. I think one thing it's important to acknowledge is that the the medical system, right? Mm -hmm. Just like every other system in this country is steeped in legacies of white supremacy and patriarchy. And so it is not surprising that those two things converge (laughs) at the intersection of race and of gender. Right. Right. So that's an important acknowledgement. What you're talking about is the depersonalization of the bodies of uh, female bodied people, but really all folks with the capacity for pregnancy, whether they identify as women or not. The other thing that you mentioned is the way that misinformation, disinformation and what Harriet Washington in her book, Medical Apartheid, calls the myth of medical distinctiveness. And that is this idea that disease manifests differently based on race and ethnicity. We've seen this used as a tool for experimentation and exploitation. We can look to some of the more common things that we've heard of, the Tuskegee experiment, right? That's a really uh, common example. It is not a unique example. It is not a single or a lone example, right? Well, in her new book, Under the Skin, Linda Villarosa wrote where we talk about the experiments done by, quote unquote, the father of gynecology those women were brutalized. I mean, like the history of medicine really at times was the acceptance of what I consider monsters. Yeah. And we don't even know really the whole story, right? We know know that the names of three women that have have really been lifted up, Betsy, Arnaka, and Lucy, whose names we know, but countless more that we don't. And even mentioning Dr. Sims, Marion Sims, the so-called father of gynecology, he is an individual that was practicing in a system. Right. And so while it's important to know his name, to know the history of gynecology, what we don't want to do is to treat these incidents as if they were outliers in the history of the field of medicine. They are the foundation of the field of medicine and everything that we do today grows out of that. And as medical providers, we have to grapple with that history. We have to work on addressing it, rectifying, making amends right? Reparations for communities that were harmed. We have yet to do that. We have yet to see that demand, that call, that response come from the medical community. We are seeing more folks in grassroots spaces make that call, right? To say that we have a debt to pay 
to many communities and how will we continue to address it? The challenge and the reason why that can be so difficult is because oftentimes we've taught to believe that medicine is one of the, we're unique, right? As, as physicians, as healthcare providers, we are unbiased. We are objective <laughs> in our approach, right? This right. is, this is the indoctrination that happens in medical education. And so it doesn't allow you to acknowledge the way that bias, implicit and explicit shows up in our care. And more importantly, the way that structural systemic racism, implicit and implicit bias shape health outcomes and our ability to advocate for ourselves, right? Okay. That's, yes. I want to bring us all back to that. In terms of maternal health, I appreciate listeners who might at this moment be pregnant and find this ah! and want to run for the hills. It's also like when we just told you they were going to poop in your tub at some point in time and you were going to get in that tub later and take a bath. So I, I get it. You don't want to hear all this. But I do feel that the more we know, the more we can advocate or the more a partner can advocate on our behalf. So we've just discussed this history. You are a practitioner, and yet we are still seeing the worst outcomes when it comes to our maternal health. You know, so it, it is. It's, it's unconscionable, right? The fact that that this country spends more per capita on healthcare than any other place in the world, and we still have the worst health outcomes. I think it's an important distinction to make, right, that in this country, we have never embraced access to healthcare as a human right. It has a lot to do with how we think about who is deserved of getting quality care, how they should or should not be able to obtain that care and who is qualified enough to dispense that care, to be in community and in participation with people as they journey toward health and wellness. It is a big ask, right? It's a big bucket because what we're talking about yeah. in addressing maternal mortality is not morbidity and mortality is not simply mm -hmm. trying to figure out what happens at that moment before the person passes away, before things go wrong, before they have a negative outcome. We cannot look at it at that moment in time and think we're going to fix this issue, right? We cannot address systemic problems with individual solutions. So looking at doctors who we think are bad actors, hospital systems or insurance providers that are bad actors. We are all working in an intricate system. This healthcare system is overlaid in the social, political, and historical context in which we live and operate. And so we cannot think about improvements to one without addressing the implications of the other, right? And so what that means for addressing maternal health outcomes, that the health and well-being of pregnant parenting people it's really understanding that it begins long before the pregnancy started. It begins before the pregnancy was even considered and certainly continues well after the end of that pregnancy, however it may end, right? We talk quite a bit about maternal mortality or maternal health in the context of a live birth, but that isn't the way that all pregnancies end. We know that lots of folks experience pregnancy loss and also need continuing care. We know lots of folks continue to seek abortion access and need continuing care. One of the things that I really love about the reproductive justice framework in particular is 
the distinction that it makes between reproductive health and reproductive rights. You know, reproductive health is the work that we do in our clinics. It is the medical care we provide. It is the research that we use to inform our care. And reproductive rights, of course, has historically focused on protecting the legal access to contraception and abortion. But reproductive justice instead really blends human rights reproductive rights and social justice to come up with this new term. The term was coined in 1994 by 12 Black women and later grew into the sister song, Mm. Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, which was formed by 16 women of color-led organizations in 1997. All of this to say that this framework does not look at healthcare delivery or simply legal access to care but instead understands that every person has the human right to determine when they have a child and the circumstances under which they give birth, when or if they have a child. Every person has the human right to determine if they will not have a child and to have the information and resources necessary to prevent an end of pregnancy. Every person has the human right to bodily autonomy, and every person has the human right to parent the children we have in communities that are safe and sustainable and free from violence from the individual and the government. And so what that means is that we cannot talk about maternal health and not talk about police violence. We cannot talk about pregnancy laws and not talk about environmental justice. We cannot talk about abortion access and not talk about our ability to get pregnant when we are seeking infertility services. All of these things are deeply connected in the lives of the patients I care for, and so they also have to be in our work. Yay! I really appreciate going into sort of defining reproductive justice. And I also appreciate the history of where it comes from. But it is a a term that once you understand its significance versus reproductive rights and reproductive health care, this intersectionality of all of these, these things we need to address, which I get my super dark inner sense of self giggles where I'm like, oh, oh, well, that sounds hard. That's like, that's my impression of the government. Mm -hmm. No, thank you. That's, can we just, let's just talk about one thing. Stop making me focus on On all the things, on all the things. And you mentioned intersectionality. Reproductive justice is inherently intersectional in its approach because it understands that that these things are deeply connected. When we talk about the reproductive justice framework and intersectionality in particular, we hear those terms, as you mentioned, a lot lately. And they're often conflated. People are conflating reproductive rights with reproductive justice, conflating reproductive health with reproductive rights. Just because you provide reproductive health care services does not mean you are doing justice work. Right. And the same thing and understanding for in terms of intersectionality, we have heard that term being co-opted and gentrified so much in the last decade. We think about uh, professor and critical race theorist Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined that term in 1989, talking specifically about the intersection of oppressions. And so when we whenever I talk about intersectionality, I'm really I think it's really important to name that we're not talking about the intersection of identities, but the oppressions mm-hmm. you experience under those identities. Right. Those right. folks in particular. And Kimberly Crenshaw was talking about black women in the Ford Motor Company in a lawsuit in 1989. Right. Whether or not you can experience or what it means to experience experience both gendered 
and racialized oppression and how that is uniquely different, right? And we all have identities that we experience oppression under. And so we are all living under this umbrella of intersectionality or at the intersection of a number of things. Right. And so it's important to name all of that together. I, I think, you know, your your mention of think this being so difficult and the desire to focus on one thing is a really common one. And it and it often <laughs> it's often paired with a feeling of of helplessness. Helplessness. Because it feels so big. I just want to name in this moment that that's the way that white supremacy works. It makes you feel small. Right. That's that's what it looks like. It looks like it makes you feel small that these systems are too big to move up against. And they're not, but they are too big for an individual. And so one of the things that that we think about and we talk about in my organizing is really power building. When Sister Song and when the Reproductive Justice Framework was developed, they were really talking about grassroots mobilization to push public policy change, understanding that public policy shapes our ability to make decisions about our health and well-being, to exercise our agency and autonomy. But in order to force that change, we need to mobilize communities. It was not a top-down approach. This is a grassroots approach. And I feel convinced is too small of a descriptor. (laughs) But in this moment that we're facing, where we're dealing with so many difficulties in the reproductive health rights and justice spaces, I believe that reproductive justice is the only way forward. We can no longer center these single issues and think that we are going to be able to build any system that's going to benefit those at the margins of care. It is a worthwhile discussion to be having to recognize and and say that out loud. Because I think, okay, one, everybody's heard me say this a million times. When it comes to having a kid in your house or what happens to your body if you have a kid or like that way, all of it, no, la, 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 no one wants to hear, gross, right? Like don't talk, don't share. Don't share about your miscarriage. Don't share about, even if you're having a hard time being a parent, right? Mm -hmm. All Mm -hmm. of it, it is a form of shutting it down. And I think that talking about reproductive justice opens up even more support for why we need to be talking about it, why we need to be talking about family planning, why we need to be talking about the roles of all parents in relationships, whether they are separated or whether they are together, whether you are individual, whether, right, like, Mm -hmm. and looking at where you live, the social, the economic, all of those things. The difference is that reproductive justice places the individual in the context of their community. Right. right. It doesn't it doesn't decontextualize a person as they're seeking access to care or fighting for their human rights or trying to raise their children in safe communities. It places that individual back in the context of their lives. And then when we think about strategies to save ourselves, to save our yeah. communities, they have to come from that context. Right. The right. medical care is not structured that way. It's we're not taught to think about health and well-being in that way, in the context of care, we are taught to 
move the individual out of that space and into our spaces as healthcare providers, and then start to strategize and come up with solutions. That has been ineffective as evidenced by our persistent inequities and health outcomes, right? (laughs) And so thinking about what a shift like it looks like, and there are models around this country of folks that are doing it really, really well. I spent some time yesterday at a wonderful uh, place in here in DC called Mama Toto's Village that has like a, a huge support system for folks that are uh, in the perinatal period. So during prenatal and postnatal care and a really community-based model, they exist in the world. And what we want to make sure is that access to them is equitable and is not, as you said, determined by where you live and how right. much money you have and what kind of insurance you may be privy to or, or have access have or to, don't have, right, right, or have yeah. or don't have. But thinking about it, and I go back to this understanding and this belief that this care, reproductive health care, is a human right. That means that everybody everywhere is entitled to it. That means your ability to achieve one right is framed by and impacted by your ability to achieve other human rights. If we don't think about access to care in that way, then we're always going to have this two-tiered system of healthcare with those who we feel like deserve really good care or can afford really good care, get care in one way, and other folks are left on the margins. That's that word, deserve. And it makes me nuts because it plays to the other side of the argument of banning abortions, this notion that, okay, if no one has access to this, what are the biases you already hold about the people who then wind up not being able to, you know, plan their family the way they want to? Right? Well, absolutely, like, right? And that's not that's not new, certainly with the SCOTUS new. decision. Right. No, right? We've always had the if we think yeah. about mass sterilization in the South of of black women and the the term and maybe some of your listeners are familiar with it, the Mississippi appendectomy, right? Which was a phrase used to describe unconsented and mass sterilization, mostly of poor Black women in Mm -hmm. the South without their knowledge and without their consent. And we know that some sterilizations were done, either total hysterectomies or tubal ligations, as practice for medical residents, right? When we think about how decisions were made about who deserves to parent and who deserves the resources to have a child to parent their children in stable communities. That word deserves come up, comes up again and again. And it comes up because we don't believe that this care is a human right. Right. All right. Let's wrap up on some very practical, a very practical question. Okay. I am coming to you or my healthcare provider if I have access to a healthcare provider, how can I be advocating for myself? How can I, because again, there's this notion, I mean, I experienced it. I know others have experienced it to different degrees, this sense of, I have a concern about my pregnancy, or I have a concern about a pain I'm having and I'm not pregnant, right? Like I'm concerned Mm -hmm. about excessive bleeding, whatever it is, it's very easy to be dismissed. And again, mm-hmm. we can go back to the history of that. <laughs> but how can I advocate mm-hmm. for my best health care? I often get that question and I think about it in two ways, right? Like one, 
I struggle with the premise of that question because I don't, I believe deeply that it is not the responsibility of the individual to have to convince their healthcare provider to take good care of them. And well, so sure. I want to be, right? <laughs> and so I want to be cognizant of say, of trying to encourage people to quote unquote advocate for themselves in a, in a system that is designed to disempower people, okay. right? That's not an easy thing to do. And that, so I guess my first response is typically, it is not a failure if this is a struggle. It is not a surprise that it is a struggle to do that for yourself because that's the way the system is set up, right? It's it's designed to be disempowering. And so if I'm thinking about what solutions are, the responsibility then, in my opinion, sits with those with the most power. And those are people that are operating within the system, doctors, administrators. It is not our job to figure out a way that people can better advocate for themselves or to empower people to advocate. It is our job to disempower this system that is intent on not allowing people to live and to be their full selves. And so I, I would like to shift the responsibility on us that are working in this system. And while we're doing that, because like that is a a visionary that, yeah, that is an say, aspirational. Great. Yes, that's an aspirational. <laughs> and we have to be aspirational, right? You yeah, know, sure. the Black Feminist Organizing has taught me, if it has taught me nothing, it has taught me to be visionary and visionary. aspirational uh, and believe that there is a future that exists that we cannot see. But in the meantime, we still need to survive these systems <laughs> and figure out how to advocate for ourselves. And sometimes folks are empowered enough to do so. The right. power dynamic that plays out in our healthcare systems is huge. And sometimes that chasm is too large to traverse for patients and for providers. Yeah. And that is where patient advocates come in, where patient support folks, I'm thinking specifically about our doula colleagues uh, oh and community gosh, health workers. With the LA Doula program last week, about I didn't realize there were that many types of companions out yes, there. Yes, there and are. It's the best, and it is unfortunately often yeah. reserved for folks with resources. And so, right. really growing right. the community of support folks for people who are who have lower resources is critical, mm -hmm. right? So, having somebody else there, whether it's a formally trained patient advocate, or your cousin, or your sister, right. or your auntie, someone else there in that moment to be able to listen with another set of ears yeah. and to advocate for you. The other thing, and this is this is a recommendation grounded in privilege, right? Is yeah. to be able to say that if you're not getting what you need, find a new provider, right? Yeah. That only works, works if you have insurance access, if you have access to other providers. So I recognize the provider shopping is a decision that is made by somebody who has the ability to do so. If you do, then you should, if you're not being listened to, if you're not being heard, ask the tough questions of your healthcare provider, right? Talk to me about how you think about inequities and in access to care. I've been diagnosed with this thing, or maybe yeah. I'm newly pregnant. How many black women do you care for? Racial concordance is, is shown to have a huge impact on health outcomes. Oh. We're seeing many more Black women who are seeking OBGYNs who are also Black women yeah. and, and for our children, pediatricians. And we know that the outcomes improve in that way. But yep. the number of Black OBGYNs is minuscule compared to the number of folks that are seeking our care. Right. So you need to be able to, to, to talk with your healthcare provider about how they approach care 
what it is that you need and build in whatever supports around you that you can until we're able to to change the system, which is the the long the long game. Long that's game. the long game. But that's the only game. Yeah, it's the long game and it's the only game, right? We have to make sure we do it. So where can we go to take I mean, there are a million places we can go to take action, but I like to keep it kind of simple each show. Yeah. So a couple of things I'd say. One, the work that we do at Physicians for Reproductive Health is really in recognition that as healthcare providers, as physicians, as doctors, we hold a lot of power. We hold a lot of authority. And the question is, how can we use that power and privilege to shift outcomes for our communities in the public space, in the legislative space? really culture change work. And so the work that we do as an organization is to teach doctors how to do that, how to think in a more complicated way, how to think in a more intersectional way. So we at PRH.org are doing lots of that work. And also we have a network of more than 500 doctors around the country that are working to advocate in their own communities. And there are doctors for all of the folks that are listening here, there are doctors in your community in our network that are doing that work and are partnering with grassroots organization at the state level. I would say the biggest piece of advice, if I had like one thing beyond supporting organizations like us, Physicians for Reproductive Health, also (laughs) folks that are advocating for abortion access, right? The National Network of Abortion Funds is really trying to to build a safety net. They have a safety net and the demands on it are strained for people who will need to travel for abortion care. Supporting local abortion funds and your local abortion provider and clinic is going to be critical in this moment. And also understanding that there is infrastructure, there is organizing that is already happening Ready. at the ground level. Ground level. What we don't need folks to do is to descend and try to recreate the wheel. Right. If you're looking for an action to take, <laughs> it would be to tap into those organizers yep. that are already in your community that are doing this work so that you can become informed about what's actually happening and be as useful as possible. All help isn't good help. And so we want folks to be able to be right. useful in their communities. <laughs> Right. And not to come in and say, it. you know, I live in the D.C. area. So for me to travel to Mississippi and make a decision about what the folks in Mississippi or Louisiana needs is uninformed and harmful often. And so we want folks to spend some time researching what's happening in your community, connecting with organizers already there and moving on from that point and not doing so in a way that is extractionary. People on the ground are overtaxed in this moment more than we have ever been in this movement. Mm -hmm. So not coming in with this question of download all of your information, teach me everything I need to know about abortion and maternity care and racism (laughs) and all. That's not, that isn't the way to go. What? Doing your own work and research, going in informed and, and making sure that you can actually make a difference and not extract from already tried sources. I find that doing your own research can get you very excited and motivated yes. in a way that asking somebody to do that work for you cannot create. And I will also emphasize all of the things that you just said about trying to go in and be quote unquote helpful. Mm-hmm. This also goes for defending clinics. And yep. look, just FYI, the people who are escorts to clinics have been trained yes, and they know the people who are 
there on the ground. Mm-hmm. And if you wander up and are like, I'm here to escort, yes. they don't That's know That's not the you. way it works. That, that is they a, don't know you. <laughs> yes. Don't do it. Don't and do it's it. often unsafe, right? And, oh, and so, so we un- have to, yeah. yeah. So so absolutely, clinic escorts, you can be trained. Yes. There are clinic escorts in your city. If you have an abortion <laughs> provider, you uh-huh. have a clinic escort service. And That's so right. being trained by that, also, you know, phone banking for oh, folks for abortion yes. funds, right? Many yeah. of the abortion funds are volunteers. Yep. And so raising money, calling people, arranging flights, logistics for folks, there is a lot of work to do. But what we don't need is for folks to try to come in and recreate a system that folks are already navigating. But to provide right. support is what we are what we need in this well, moment. Yeah. Thank you for all of the work that you're doing and for joining us. Everybody, look, here's somebody very easily we can all support. Uh, The work work and the organizations that she works with. Yes. I appreciate the work that you do. I appreciate especially the work that you're doing in terms of getting in front of Congress and our representatives and pushing this. And thank you you're doing just an amazing job, and I see you, and I, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. And we will make sure that everybody will have all the links to everything we've talked about, including all the books. Yes, Because those absolutely. are fun. I mean, I, my idea of fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Oh, yeah, that. Like, just give me a good summer read on yes, the history yes, of yes. reproductive care. I, well, one tip that I'd have is that, because I, I do the same thing, but I often, I'm one of those people that read multiple books at a yeah, time. Same here. So I'll read that one and then also do some like light-hearted yeah. fiction okay. along the right. way. So you can see <laughs> There you go. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. And I hope it was useful. It, it was useful to me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> one at a time. So thank yes. you so much. Absolutely. My pleasure. One Bad Mother is supported in part by HelloFresh. You can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that is why it's America's number one meal kit. Look, I really have enjoyed using HelloFresh. I have got an amusing little story about it. My sister was in town. And, you know, you got to use that HelloFresh when it comes. And so we were like, well, let's, we'll serve it to my sister at the same time. And Stefan always cooks for my family. And everybody loves what Stefan makes. And I was like, well, I wonder what Helen Michelle's going to think. And she said it was the best thing Stefan has ever served her. And we were like, it's HelloFresh. <laughs> it was so good. It was so Good. Go to HelloFresh.com slash BadMother16 and use code BadMother16 for free meals across seven boxes and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash BadMother16 and code BadMother16 for 16 free meals across seven boxes and three free gifts. 
Hey, you know what it's time for? This week's Genius and Fails. This is the part of the show where we share our genius moment of the week, as well as our failures, and feel better about ourselves by hearing yours. You can share some of your own by calling 206-350-9485. That's 206-350-9485. Genius fail time. Genius me. Me. Wow. Oh my God. Oh my God. I saw what you did. Oh my God. I'm paying attention. Wow. You, Mom, are a genius. Oh my God, that's fucking genius. Okay, short and sweet. Ellis is officially set up for their first therapy appointment. And I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to help them a lot. I think it's going to help Stefan and I. A lot and Raiden a lot. And yes, I just can't emphasize enough trying to find, and it, did, it wasn't easy. It wasn't quick. It took a little while to find somebody, somebody who had a schedule. You got to meet with them. You got to talk with them. Getting access to healthcare in our country is uh, difficult. But all that said, it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth it. So I always say that to remind you guys that if you need it, or if maybe your kids need it, let's figure out a way to help you get it. Anyway, so hooray, Ellis will be having their first therapy day soon. Hey, One Bad Mother, this is Laurel, and I'm calling with a genius moment that is maybe born of a rant. It's four in the morning, and I've just gotten back from getting milk at the Cumberland Farms. My daughter has an eye infection and a cough, and my husband went from fine to can't get out of bed yesterday. Mm. And so last night I managed, basically I mommed up. I think that's the genius moment. Last night I managed the chores that we usually do together after the baby went to bed, both the preparation of all of her uh, meals for today and um, all of the dishes that we accumulate during the day so that we're ready. (laughs) And usually, the way that we divide labor, if there's an overnight wake-up, my husband takes those. But when Addie woke up 30 minutes ago, I got up with her and helped her get back to sleep. But I did end up offering her some milk and realized in that moment that it was using up the milk that we had. (laughs) So then I said, you know what, I'm just going to go on this roll. And I went out to the Cumberland Farms at 4 in the morning, surprisingly large crowd of people there. (laughs) And... I think really the genius moment for me is that I'm not feeling resentment or sad for myself right now. I'm just kind of feeling proud that I'm doing it all. So I'm going to stick with that. And just so you know, I love the show, but I insisted on watching from the beginning uh, or listening from the beginning when I didn't actually start along with you guys. And so I'm currently uh, living with you in a one bad mother world in mid-2017. Oh, so, Yeah. A little bit of a blast from the past, blast from the future, whichever one this is. Thanks, you're doing a good job. <laughs> Those were different days. You're also doing a good job. That, you, see, it's weird. I always forget that the show lives in, in different timelines for people. Surprise, it's a little different. <laughs> Still trying to figure it out. But you're doing an amazing job, and... I, the genius that you're sharing, I mean, all the stuff that you did was genius, but acknowledging that you didn't feel resentful is a big deal because resentment is really easy. 
And, you know, even if it doesn't last, even if it doesn't like consume you, it is easy for that. And there are moments where I've had that similar moment where I'm like, no, I'm just doing this. It's okay. I'm not mad. I'm like, I'm not resentful. I'm just getting it done because that's what I got to do. It's amazing. You're amazing. You are amazing. And you are doing a great job. And I totally see you not being resentful. Failures. Fail, 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 fail. You suck. All right. I'm pretty sure I shared this already, but I did it again. So what's worse is this might be the third time I've shared this. I'm not really sure. So uh, a couple of days a week, very early in the morning, get my mama and take her to her little water aerobics class. It's like 7.30. I got to pick her up. And then I, it's nice. I go walk the Rose Bowl while she's doing her things. It's like a needed thing. Then I get her and I take her back. That window while I'm gone is the same time that Ellis has to get to camp this week. And Stefan was going to take Ellis in their car. And I get this call after I've dropped Mama off. And it's from Stefan because once again, I had to use his car earlier this week and I hadn't taken his key out of my bag. So I had to, once again, go home and give him the key and, you know, not just hate it. Didn't like it. Just not, didn't, didn't feel good. Felt bad. Oh, thank you for saying I'm doing a great job. I so appreciate that. I'm not sure if this is a genius or a fail or a combination of both, but I was trying to get ready for work today and was in a rush and kept telling myself, okay, don't forget to get my kids' medicines ready. It will take something for anxiety. Okay, don't forget, don't forget. Before you leave, don't forget. And started to drive to work, and I was a couple minutes away from the house and was like, crud. (laughs) They got their medicine. I forgot to take my medicine Mm. that I take for my own stuff. So, yeah. So I had to turn around and, yeah, had to run home, mm-hmm. say hi to everybody again, take my medicine, say bye, walk out, get in the car, and now I'm going to be even more late to work. I was already running late as it was, but so, I, like I said, I don't know if this is a genius <laughs> or fail or what, but uh, <laughs> it's just a day. That's what it is. It's a day. I guess the good thing is, is we've all gotten our medicine today which is good. So we're all not a mess. All right. You're doing a great job. Bye. Oh, talking about taking your medicine. Woo. You just took a big tablespoon of failure taking care of yourself. Of course you forgot your own medicine. I mean, you went back and you got it and I really appreciate it. And there's nothing like more annoying than the moment where you have finally gotten out of the house. And if you've got kids that maybe separation is not the best, or they openly mock you when you make a mistake, the whole like turning around, getting back, get out of the car, you gotta go again, you gotta get the medicine. Everybody's like, ha ha, (laughs) mom, you're a loser. That's that's what they're not saying. But (laughs) I'm really sorry. But look, you say it's just a day, and that's true. Just another day failing yourself as a self. 
favor to ask. Will you help us out by taking a five-minute survey at MaximumFun.org survey? As you know, most of the support for MaxFun comes directly from folks like you, but many of our shows and our network also rely on limited advertising for some revenue. This survey helps us attract advertisers that are a good fit for the audiences of our shows, and it helps many of our hosts secure a bit of extra income. It should only take a few minutes to complete, and you'll get a discount at MaxFun store when you do. That's MaximumFun.org survey. Thanks. Does our podcast deep dive into the weirdest Wikipedia pages we can find? Yes. Do we learn about scam artists, remote islands, horrible mascots, beautiful diseases, and mythical monsters? Yes, 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 absolutely, and yes. Do we retain any of this knowledge? Eh, probably not. I'm Emily Heller. I'm Lisa Hannawalt. We make art and comedy and TV shows and also the podcast Baby Geniuses. For the past eight years, we've been trying to learn new things about the world and each other every episode. But let's be honest, this podcast is mostly about two friends hanging out, shooting the breeze, and making each other laugh. We're horny, we like gardening and horses, and we get real stupid on here. But like, in a smart way. Yeah. Join us every other week on Maximum Fun. Baby Geniuses, tell us something we don't know. All right, everybody, let's listen to a mom have a breakdown. Hey, Biz, this is a rant bordering on a breakdown. (laughs) It's been such a long week. My seven-year-old has been home all week because I didn't have anything scheduled for her because it's summer break and who can afford day camp every week? So she was home and it was long and I was doing two jobs because one of my colleagues was off and nobody told me she'd be off, so... I was doing two jobs this week, plus my kid was home, and now it's Friday, and my three-year-old spiked a fever at daycare today, so she's been home all day, and, you know, the fever went away, and now it's back, and the worst part is that it's my older kid's birthday party tomorrow. Oh, my God. She's been looking forward to it for weeks, and her little sister might not get to go and I might not get to go because one of us will have to stay home with her if she has a fever in the morning. And we're going to have to COVID test her because Dan wants to drive them to my parents' house tomorrow afternoon after the party so that they can stay there for a week and have a grandma and grandpa week. But I can't send them if they have COVID because I can't give my 60-something-year-old parents COVID. So, yep, turned into a breakdown. We had a great plan, and it was very stressful to do, and now it's just not going to happen, is it? It might not happen. Everybody is frustrated. I'm frustrated. My husband is frustrated. My older kid is frustrated. My little kid is not sleeping because I gave her Advil, but... Oh, I just, I can't catch a break. I can't catch a break. When am I going to catch a break? Oh, thanks for the show, Jess. You are doing a really good job. Let's just all 
stop for a second. You're doing a great job. And I know so because like let's let's separate out the potential for change and look at all that you did in terms of like planning and getting things set up. That takes a lot of work. And you did a great job. You did a great job planning your kid's birthday. You did a great job making plans for them to go to your parent to their grandparents. You have done a good job of caring for your three-year-old. These, these things, the reason why it's such a gut punch is because of the work that you put into it. And so I I, I want to make sure that we take a moment to just see you and the work that you've done. Everything else just goes to prove how fucking impossible this is. <laughs> like, how do people get anything? I'm just going to quote Teresa. I'm going to channel my inner Teresa. How do people get anything done? It is, and it's a legitimate question. I don't know. It is. It is truly remarkable how one domino can topple. Well, it's not that remarkable. I've seen domino challenges, so I'm not sure why I'm that surprised that when one falls, it knocks down so many other things. And it takes a lot of energy, everybody, to let that go. Pivoting isn't easy. And disappointment is not easy and trying to put a positive spin on it isn't e always easy. And trying to like, you know, you see it in the movies and the TV shows, like where this kind of thing happens. And then, you know, but somehow miraculously, everybody's in bed at a reasonable time at the end of the episode. And the two parents are like, but we still love each other. <laughs> We're at least getting this time together, right? We're going to make it. Well, fuck that. That's not how it always is because we're already really tired. So it's a big ask. I am really crossing my fingers that it, your youngest didn't have COVID for a variety of reasons. <laughs> but I will say in my horrible person mode, I hope they don't get COVID because it's gonna really fuck a bunch of stuff up, okay? And that's okay to say. It's okay, all right? The bottom line is it sucks, and it is at times okay to feel that it is too much to ask of yourself to get over it, and that's okay. I mean, it really is. You will get over it. You will all get through it, but it's okay to be disappointed, and I think you're doing a remarkable job. I actually think it sounds like everybody's kind of doing a remarkable job in your house. And when everybody's doing a remarkable job, it's because you're remarkable too. <laughs> Good job. I think you're great. You've got this. Everybody, you're all remarkable. This is, I know, I know, it's been a weird couple of episodes, guys, but I have needed as a self to to talk about these things and to learn more about the healthcare system as well as all of the different issues that 
sort of diverge onto parents, whether it be affordable healthcare, whether it be affordable childcare, you know, food shortages, time work management, access to good quality medical care, and the right to family planning and being taken seriously as a person, no matter who you are, when you have concerns about your family, your kids, these all tie into feeling like a self, in my opinion. And I feel like having these discussions, regardless of where we all kind of fall when it comes to being affected by different aspects of it, or where we stand on how we feel about certain aspects of the debates and the discussions that are out there, I think talking about it, again, normalizes it, and again, normalizes our right to discuss things and our right to ask for things to be better. So I appreciate you guys listening to the show and supporting the show and letting it be a space where we can explore that, hopefully safely together, a little humor and a little interest in learning more. I appreciate that because you guys are all doing such a good job. You're remarkable. And from our first, like our check-in at the start to our rant, I mean, it, it's all about the pivot. It's all about the change. It's all about the unexpected. And it's all about it happening at really inopportune times, which sucks. <laughs> so I see you. Let's go out and see each other. You're all doing a really good job. Let's don't feel like shit for being a parent. And I will talk to you next week. Bye. I got to low down mama blues. I got to low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. Low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. You know that right. We'd like to thank Max Fun, our producer, Gabe Mara, our husbands, Stephen Lawrence and Jesse Thorne, our perfect children who provide us with inspiration to say all these horrible things, and of course, you, our listeners. To find out more about the songs you heard on today's podcast and more about the show, please go to MaximumFun.org slash OneBadMother. For information about live shows, our book, and press, please check out OneBadMotherPodcast.com. One Bad Mother is a member of the Maximum Fun family of podcasts. To support the show, go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Well, Daddy, baby, bustin' by, not low down mama blue. Oh, said Daddy, baby, bustin' by, not low down mama blue. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.